curiosity is not so much the practice as the writing is is the practice. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. I tell my guests once they're on the show, they're part of my curiosity community for the duration. Maybe once or twice a year, I like to reach out to everyone and just check in. And so it was back in August when I sent out a bit of an update, reaching more radio stations and communities, my first international talk to a curiosity conference in India, and an invitation to join guest David Pearl in the Worldwide Wander, which was then about a month away. That makes it sound like these updates are mostly about me, but I really mean them to be a love letter to my guests, a reflection of the many and amazing directions they take me and us, and an expression of my gratitude for the continuing conversations and collective discovery. One thing I didn't fully appreciate about my little news flashes is that they generate reciprocal updates. Suddenly, I'm hearing about adventures far and wide, families extended, professional milestones. It's really quite fabulous. Among the notes from my August news was one from poet David Keplinger. David's a professor at American University. We got to know one another through a humanities work group that was looking at how curiosity might be more effectively woven into the fabric of life at AU. He was a warm and profoundly thoughtful participant in the group, one of my favorites. And it isn't just me that thinks that. In May of 2022, AU named David the 2022 Teacher Scholar of the Year. David joined me on the show in the thick of the pandemic for a conversation about solitude. It was, is, lovely. You can find it on my website. So when David shared his own exciting news about his latest book, Ice, that had just come out and that had been mentioned in the New York Times book review, the Washington Post book world newsletter, and received a bunch of other favorable reviews, my ears perked right up. Ice starts with the melting permafrost in Siberia, which began to reveal the bodies of 40,000-year-old animals from the last ice age. The poems about frozen animals then segue into poems about our own bodies under the ice of forgetting. Childhood and adolescent bodies stuck in their own traumas in the past, and how the light of poetry for him melted that ice away and helped him remember. Joanna Macy, an environmental activist, author, and scholar of Buddhism, wrote, Keep watch for David Keplinger. His poems, with their exquisite immediacy and valor, confront us with what we need to see, our intimate part in the fate of our planet. Yet even in the anguish, we experience the beauty of it and feel a kind of redemption in the truth-telling. Confronting us with what we need to see feels to me like an ultimate invitation to the practice of curiosity, pushing aside what we want to see or have been told to see, and resting with our full attention on what really is, finding that redemptive balm of truth-telling. I spent a weekend immersed in ice. I think you'll see why. So welcome, David. It is so great to have you back. 
Oh, Lynn, thank you so much. And thank you for that introduction. Absolutely exquisite. Well, congratulations on the book. It's exciting to hear that you're continuing to do readings and it's continuing to garner well-deserved attention. It's pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to to read it because a lot of times what happens when you're writing a poetry book is that you're focusing on one poem at a time. Then the book comes out. You've thought about it as a project, but you begin to learn things about it after it's been written. And in the the being forced to talk about it, you discover new things. So yeah. this is a real pleasure for me. I think of it as a an opportunity to discover something too about what's going on here. Oh, that's cool. So I'm actually going to ask you to read Ice because there's some interesting foreshadowing in it, but I don't want to steal your thunder. So would you, would you read it? Yes, this is Ice. It's the first poem in the book and it's the title poem. It has an epigraph from the Siberian Times. And the epigraph reads, the severed head of the world's first full-sized Pleistocene wolf was unearthed in the Abyski district in the north of Yakutia on the shore of the Tiriktyak River. And that's from 2020. And here's the poem, Ice. What I heard is that the locals searching for the mammoth tusk along the Tiriktyak discovered instead the head of a wolf that had been frozen over 40,000 years ago. The tongue hung from its mouth. The teeth were terrible, but mostly there. The head alone was the size of a child. When the local people found the full-grown wolf head on the Tirtyak and pulled it like a molar from the sopping, gummy earth and hoisted it, the hardened points of fur cut through the gloves into their hands. On each side of the face, the eye sealed shut. When we read about the story of it together, those were the days when we would stay up all winter in the house, writing poems in our rooms. You wanted a child. I don't know where that question got buried in my body. The wolf head lived on top of its body in the valley on the river, and we cannot know how the head got severed from the heart. The body may have dropped and collapsed into grass roots and larches, or it may have been cut from the wolf. But the head stayed intact as it still is, as it feels that way now, the heft and the size of a child, cocked sideways in its question on the shoulders of the world. Thank you. So God, there's so many different things I want to ask you. So, so many of your poems, particularly the earlier ones in the book, start with these news clippings. Yes. Was it the curiosity about that news that was the impetus for yes. I mean, you didn't see this coming, right? You didn't think you were going to be talking about melting permafrost. It just so happened that I read an article that led to another article that led to another article that led to a fascination slash obsession with these uh, animals who had been preserved, as you said, under uh, permafrost for 40,000 years, 50,000 years, and due to climate change, were now being discovered on the surface uh, of, of 
the land. And not just by archaeologists or anthropologists, but by children and by Mm -hmm. uh, tusk hunters and and people who are out looking for other things. So uh, the the first thought is that these are are, uh, appearances from underneath that come not through some intentional looking for them, but through accidents and through um, the consequence of past actions that now have come to light. So the, the appearance of these, these bodies on the surface first to me were just fascinating tidbits of news. But then I realized that I could, I could read into them deeply and see a little bit of my own uh, uh, past and my own previous bodies popping up to the surface too. And that's where the book led me. It started with this um, purely zoological phenomenon, and it led to something much more psychological by the end of the writing of the book. That's so interesting. You know, uh, Christy Johnson, who's a neuroscientist, when I interviewed on curiosity and neurodiversity, says that she thinks of curiosity being defined by the ways we excel at exploration. And I think poetry is the way you excel at exploration. Hmm. Yeah? Well, I, uh, I certainly would say that poetry has been um, a well-worn groove for me to get to that place of curiosity and discovery uh, because I've been doing it for 30 plus years. And if you do anything for 30 plus years, whether it be journalism or gardening or bowling, <laughs> you start to talk like a mystic, you know? <laughs> So, so that's a great segue, actually. Um, one of your reviewers, maybe it was Parker Palmer, mm-hmm. wrote that you keep returning to beginner's mind, which comes from Zen Buddhism and refers to having an attitude of openness, eagerness, lack of preconception. Is that a curiosity practice? I mean, you, you, you meditate, you lead meditation groups. Is that beginner's mind a curiosity practice for you in your writing as well? To say that it's a practice means that there's something um, organized about it. Mm. Uh, I would say that it's that curiosity has always been my my tendency, mm-hmm. uh, and you can develop it more with with the practice of writing. So curiosity is not so much the practice as the writing is is the practice. Oh, nice. Very organized uh, activity for me, and then what I can do in the writing is draw from my strengths and not pay attention to the weaker aspects of my literary life. Uh, maybe I'm not as, as talented as others at this area of poetry writing, but when it comes to seeing everything as a metaphor and, and, and reading my own story into things that are happening far away from me, then I am uh, in a place that feels very natural and in which I excel. Mm-hmm. So my tendency is to just lean into those those skills that I already have and to deepen them and then to let the other skills develop on their own if they so choose. If they don't develop, then that's fine. Um, and I, when I teach this, this practice to students, I, I try to do the same thing. I just notice what they happen to do well and say, keep doing that and let's use prompts that will help develop that skill and widen it and deepen it. And let's not pay attention to these other things. If you're not great at telling 
long stories, then don't try to tell them. Don't feel that you have to excel at every aspect of writing uh, when really you only have to excel at one or two and, uh, and can go very far with, with those two skills. Wow, what a lovely message for someone who's trying to make their way in a form that many people find really hard to approach. That's a very generous way to invite people in. Well, it, it's, it's generous. I'm glad that you say so. I, I want to be generous. It's also, it's also true that yeah. if you, and this, this does happen to lean into Buddhist practice a little bit. If you let go with equanimity and allow freedom and space around what you're doing and you don't approach it with grasping and attachment to a certain outcome, which is publication, then you will go as far as you're able to under the conditions in which you're, you're working and writing. It's just going to happen. But it has, it, it's the, the dance of working hard and letting go, working hard and letting go, reading everything taking it all in. And for me, looking at those pictures of these, these animals under the ice and, and watching this news unfold and feeling, as I've described elsewhere, the, the mixed experience of mourning and wonder. Mourning because the, the whole reason we're seeing this is the result of climate change and damage to the planet. And wonder being that we've been walking on top of these bodies and other bodies that we'll never see and never meet uh, all our lives without recognizing the lineage from which we've come the long 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 lineage of existence and sentience and suffering and joy and puppies and wolves <laughs> and uh, woolly rhinos so i wanted to talk to you a little bit about sort of the structure and craft of poetry because it's not something that I've really studied, but I've been really interested in reading your work about how different the poems are structurally. And I feel as if I might be missing something crucial. This is like reading James Joyce Ulysses when I was in college. And I felt like I am missing a lot here. I do not understand all the references, right? You know, some of the, some of your poems read like short paragraph Prose, mm -hmm. like it doesn't look like poetry at all. Some are in these broken lines with kind of three clauses across. Some are like a long, thin tail. Tell me a little bit more about the form of a poem and 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 tie that to curiosity in some way if 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 you think it relates at all. Well, let's say that you are obsessed and fascinated by something that you have read. Maybe it's, it's a photograph that you saw in the newspaper and this thing is haunting you and you don't know what to do with it. It's just sitting in you and you, you're reminded of it several, several times a day. This is the kind of experience that, that might happen to me. I'm just thinking about that photo again. Why is it that that particular photo uh, has so haunted me that it keeps popping up out of the ice, popping up to the surface? Why, why is it doing that? 
So the poem starts with the, why is it doing that? It might be a story that my grandmother told me. It might be an experience that I had with a hollyhock. It might be um, any number of things. It might be stopping in the woods uh, um, on, a, on a winter evening. Gentle references to previous conversations. <laughs> it could be anything, but it, this this thing is haunting me. So that's that's when I know that that there's space there. There's a, a certain amount of possibility that could lead to a poem. And then I'll start to, to write the content. And the content could be written as prose or it could be written out as a sonnet or some other kind of poetic form. And at that point, you're just shooting in the dark. You really don't know what the, the form is going to look like to contain this, this content. But what you've got is, is a certain amount of coffee and you're trying to find the perfect coffee cup for it. And so it's spilling over, <laughs> it's falling short, and it's already cold in the in the cup by the time it reaches your lips. Eventually, you're going to find that perfect cup for the cup of coffee that you're pouring. It sounds oversimplified, but this could take years. It could sometimes come out in the first try, or it could take 20 years. And I've had poems that have haunted me and come back again and again and again, asking to be rewritten for that long until I've finally gotten them right. And when I do, I know that there's something that has something to do with short lines and moving slowly down the page and hesitation and doubt and long lines and feeling confident and shouting th something from far off. Uh, or it has to do with prose poems that pretend not to be poems and say, don't pay attention to me. I'm not even a poem. Uh -huh. A little transgressive already. The material is kind of transgressive and funny or talking from the margins of tradition. So I'm always thinking about how the material and how the visual, aural, and rhetorical qualities of the form are in conversation. And eventually you hit it and you just know that's the one and you move on to the next one. Sometimes you'll go back to it a year later and say, oh, I could change this or that. But for me, when I know that I've hit the mark, the poem doesn't change very much at all. Interesting. That's actually really helpful. Suddenly a bunch of things kind of are clicking into place for me in terms of kind of what was or wasn't going on. And I love just the reminder to slow down. I also love that you give yourself credit where it is very much deserved for your skill with the metaphor. Oh, man. You know, I know I love a good analogy, right? Your, but your metaphors are just like <laughs> stupendous. And so I want to, there's one, I mean, just one of so many. And I thought, I have no idea what this means, whether I'm supposed to know. But like, it makes sense to me on a almost cellular level. It's in the poem um, at Ossip. You say, your eyes, the size of thank you notes. I'm like, what on earth does that mean? But it's so beautiful and so evocative. <laughs> I got a lot of those. I mean, I, <laughs> you I, do have a lot of those. We could talk about that poem and what it means in the context of the poem. But I, I do believe that uh, images are like those photographs that I was just describing. You don't know why that has has struck you. And that means that it's doing some kind of work in you that is, is, is going to lead you 
maybe sometime in the future to remember something or mm -hmm. will click somehow, or it'll just haunt you. I think that the best images don't mean anything. The best images create meaning between themselves and your own experience. There's a, there's a space between the image itself, which means nothing but what it is, and your experience, and in the interstice between the two, mm -hmm. meaning is created. That's Mallarmé, a prose poet from, from France from the 19th century, but it's still true. It'll always be true that for me, things don't mean unto themselves. They only mean in relationship to other things. So whatever that image did, it's speaking to something in you that I couldn't possibly know. And you're still trying to traverse that distance between it and your own memory or your mm -hmm. own experience or your own way of looking at the world. Maybe there's something sad about it and something joyful at the same time, or it comes from some memory that is still suppressed, but I'm glad that it haunted you. Oh my gosh. I mean, the, li the list is long. I'm just like, I don't know, what's the one I want to use as an example, but that one... I thought was just well particularly resonant in in all the ways I now understand that you really <laughs> hoped it would be, you know, going back to the craft and the structure, but also um, bringing people into you know stories of long gone creatures and your own story, um, and and creating a way for people to find themselves in them. Well, yeah, that's the other thing about you could be talking about yourself uh, as much as you could be talking about uh, um, the other. And in this this collection of animals and ice is really about looking into these very different species of animal and calling up portions of myself. So each one is a, a metaphor for an aspect of myself. Each one is a, is a fairy tale that's enacting some hidden, suppressed or repressed um, um, memory that is now given space to rise to the surface. Um, and as you said in your beautiful introduction, it was the light of reading and the light of poetry and the light of of literature uh, and all of the literatures that I came to um, to read and to let into my life that allowed this ice to slowly melt and these other bodies, which believe they're the real body, to rise to the surface uh, finally and, in a sense, be released. The book is about emergence and and release as much as it is about things that are hidden. In the, in the underworld. Well, it's really a beautiful piece of work. I really, really commend you. And we could talk forever, but we don't have that time. So I'm going to move us to our big jar of wannabe analogies. Okay. Um, which I think is going to be pretty fun with you, I have to say. Okay. Pressure's on. Uh, what's that? No, no. <laughs> You know, there are no wrong answers here, right? And it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense because it'll just haunt people. It's This is a great new way for people to think about it. So I have my jar. I have slips of paper, one for you, one for me, one for the audience. Um, we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips. 
<laughs> okay. Yours is sausage. sausage. Mine is walrus. I have one for the audience. So you want to go first or you want me to go? Uh, why don't you go first? Walrus. Um, wow. Uh, how is curiosity like a walrus? Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is that a walrus is sometimes kind of big and ungainly and, um, and sometimes not all that attractive, but once it's in its element, it's quite graceful and beautiful. And I think, Hmm. I think curiosity is like that. Sometimes it's not elegant and it's cumbersome and, and maybe a little intimidating, um, so I'll say that's how curiosity is like a walrus. How is curiosity like sausage? <laughs> well, there are many ways to, to to go about this. You could say, you know, I want to know how the sausage is made. Right. Curiosity is the key to uh, to seeing that uh, that secret society of of making of things. Um, the other thing about sausage that I thought thought about was that it's peasant food. I mean, it's also oh. it's also the the food of royalty. But um, when I think about sausage, I remember those those winters in Friedek Mistek in the Czech Republic in my twenties when I was teaching at a, a little high school um, on the, the the far eastern uh, portion of of the country, uh, and uh, sausage was the you know the the, the food of choice uh, in the the canteen every day. And it was it was like being in the 19th century, and so as peasant food, uh, I would say sausage sort of as as curiosity reminds me that um, that it's for everybody that that uh, curiosity is the the nourishment that we all need, and it should not be relegated to uh, classrooms and to. Um, conversations in academia. It's something that is uh, a staple of life. I love it. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And audience, yours is sculpture. How is curiosity like sculpture? Let us know. Social media, hashtag analogy. Well, David, oh my gosh, thank you so much for this. It's just always such a pleasure. Well, it, the pleasure is mine. It's wonderful to to hear your voice and uh, and yeah, and to be a part of this fantastic show. And congratulations on all your success. You've been listening to Choose to Be Curious: Conversations about Curiosity and Work and Life. I'm Lynn Borton, your host. Thanks for joining us here today. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to Be Curious, where you can share your sculpture analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, David Keplinger. Links to his latest book, Ice, and other writings on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Snowmelt by Glacier Quartet, Araby via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. <laughs> <laughs>